Italian IT one day at a time. Day 10, we've reached it, the point of no return. Here on O'Hara, hello. God, Rob, what have you done to us? This is the one, this is the whole point. Relive every day, yeah, but that means you have to relive the day Ireland played Egypt, so it won't work, it can't work. That's what they said, Billy Joe Patton. We're here, we're about to find out. No, I left it to the last minute as well, and the sun is splitting the stones, and I end up watching it on an iPad in the back garden, and I think I'll be squinting for the next week. Colin Sheridan, welcome along. Evening, gents. Yeah, I'm sitting here in a lime green Slazenger V-neck in homage to Bill O'Hurley. I look like Michael Douglas in the nightclub scene of Basic Instinct, but I'm ready to go. <laughs> Good to have you. Well, I certainly hadn't seen that when I was 14. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, fair point. It's the contrast, Billy Joe, between what came in the evening, two games alongside each other, admittedly, so he wouldn't have been able to watch both, but goals galore and fantastic goals at that, and then, well, kind of the opposite. Yes, brilliant, brilliant goals in both those games. Uh, good, fast, free-flowing football. Players trying to, you know, willing to try different things uh, with the ball. Combination play, one-twos, you know, full-backs getting forward, putting crosses in. Um, exciting football, really. And then, I suppose, we are, our focus is, uh, is Ireland-Egypt. And I think it was a really drab affair. Day 10, June the 17th, 1990. Republic of Ireland, nil. Egypt, nil. It's all very well having a direct uh, game plan and trying to do things that way and and get the ball as quickly from back to front as you possibly can. But uh, when your forwards aren't playing very well, it becomes a a pretty difficult strategy to, to put in place. And I think the only thing that really made this whole experience of rewatching that game bearable was the American commentary I was watching it on <laughs> for two reasons. The first reason was that they still had commercial breaks. So every 15 minutes, I missed two minutes of it. So it actually sped up the process of getting through it. Which oh, that's good. It, it wasn't one of those ones where they have this uh, ad-free half of football is brought to you by and they keep repeating it in lieu of ads. No, it literally just broke and I missed two and a half minutes or whatever it is of, of, of the game, maybe three or four times a half. So it was, it was brilliant. It just really moved me through the things. And I just loved, particularly at the start of the game, some of the American terminology. Like we had McCarthy and Moran in the backfield. At one stage there, I was thinking that Paul McGraw was maybe going to take a snap, you know, play action and hand off to Mick McCarthy driving up the field. And at another stage in the first half, which really made my day was that uh, Kevin Sheedy was in double coverage. So, like that, that really just you know, it's the only thing that kept me going through that game. Through that game, Mac- McCarthy and Moran in the backfield might have been use- useful to me that day. We could have got the hay in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Colin. As we uh, start to come to terms with this, maybe we should give people a little bit of an idea of what the scene was. Obviously, people are listening along with the podcast and know well that England and Holland had drawn nil all the night before. The Irish team, incidentally, Colin, here's something I read in the paper on the morning of Ireland Egypt had watched that game with an exclusive, specially arranged commentary from George Hamilton in their hotel. Are you flagging that? Well, we can blame George Hamilton then, uh, Rob. Yeah, I mean, the, the scene was certainly set uh, England-Holland the night before. Uh, I think Holland were dosed to get out of that one um, with, with a nil-nil draw, obviously. But uh, yeah, this was, this was Sunday afternoon. Uh, this was uh, the entire country watching. Everything else pretty much was, was pushed to one side. Uh, dinners were at early in advance of this. And 
yeah, the scene was most certainly set because honestly, um, it looked like after a performance against England, if we could uh, pick up a win against Egypt, that was us through, especially after the results the night before. So there was huge anticipation, uh, huge excitement. Uh, and by God, I'd say there was a lot of grass cut that evening and frustration because it was a tough one. I've got to say, Rob, 14-year-old me and 44-year-old me are very frustrated with FIFA. That they've put two games that I might have enjoyed watching individually on at the same time that night. And I couldn't turn this muck over at the time. Like, how this became, in prime time, the only option. It's just bewildering. And... I, I actually, I can remember at the time being somewhat disappointed in, in Dunphy's perceived negativity, but God, I understand why the pen flew that day. Fly as far as everyone kind of makes out all these years later. It was no more than two feet away from, I think, when it landed there, Billy Joe Haddon, but he could easily have, he could have sent a fly. At the time, again, I, I couldn't understand it. You just, you just, in many ways, you probably thought it was just being provocative or, or, or being, you know, Good television, but it's obvious when you watch it back now that it really does hurt him the way the team plays, and he expects so much more considering the players that he feels they had at their disposal. And I, I think that it, it's a question that we keep asking ourselves in Irish sport over and over again about you know you know is winning or being reasonably successful good enough? And I think even Joe Smith and the Irish rugby coach has found that in the last number of years that being successful hasn't been good enough where you, you have to ha- add a bit of panache to it. And when I was thinking about it pretty much all day, <laughs> pretty much thinking about that that discussion pretty much throughout that whole game, and uh, I was trying to think back on teams that have had really big successes, you know, smaller nations. You think of Denmark winning the Euros, you think of Greece winning the Euros, and they don't really play brilliant football to do it. They kind of you know, just get there on, you know, the odd penalty shootout, long-range goal, being solid at the back. Whereas if you look at maybe a team like Croatia, they're built on three, in my opinion, fabulously creative footballers in Sukar, Boban, Prozaneski. And we didn't have players like that. So I think it's very hard for you to say that we'd be as successful if we were trying to play really creative football without having the creative footballers that you need to be uh, you know, to to be really successful at the top level when you're a smaller nation. But in saying that, when you look at the way they played the game on the day, it was pretty basic. It was horrific. And they could have done so much more uh, other than just basically lump it up to Cascarino. And I think the problem with Cass was that he just had a particularly bad day at the office. But he just had no space. Like... We find now what the full extent of the bluntness of this instrument, that tactic is in this game. Because Egypt put 11 players behind the ball and Ireland's response is to put more bodies in there, to reduce the space even further. And to me, you're just looking at it going, just hold the ball in your own half for a while, suck them out and hit them. They've fallen for the trap laid by Egypt. They're quite happy to have that ball being fought by 21 individuals. But I suppose the other thing is for me is that you know who's going to play this passes like if you if watching the game every ball is bouncing up hip height and there's two or three Egyptians in and around the ball there's no one there taking it down because it is just literally going so quickly from back to front in a straight line it might be a different thing if if 
uh, Staunton was getting to the halfway line on the left wing and he was putting a diagonal across for, for Cascarino to knock back across the goal and, and you have Aldridge or a midfielder coming in there but everything was really straight up and it was simple for Egyptian defenders to deal with because they just had to head it straight back out or knock it straight back out and Cass wasn't having a good enough game to be able to flick one round the corner and find a teammate or, or, or take it to feet and, and play a pass that wasn't going 20 yards back the field again because every time he was able to play a pass that was going back it was going literally straight back which was sort of borne out in what Dumphy said after the game and while I understood his fr- uh, frustration a little, bit, a little bit then probably not so much but certainly now looking back he was also quite dismissive of Egypt uh, and first of all they played they played uh, so well against uh, the Netherlands and they played better, much better football against the Netherlands and as we did at, at times against England but to even go a little bit further back, like Ireland, like had gone through the qualifying campaign unbeaten, save for the away loss to Spain. Uh, Egypt conceded two goals uh, throughout their entire qualification uh, campaign, so you had two teams that didn't concede an awful lot of goals. Um, probably in some ways played a similar style of football. Um, now Egypt were far more negative, obviously, than Ireland were during this game, and which surprised me because of how well they did play against the Netherlands, to be honest, and they showed a lot more uh, imagination in how they played uh, that day. Um, and yeah, Cascarino and Aldridge, there was a lot of, you know, they got the legs kicked off them, shorts tugged off them uh, the whole afternoon as well. But there was no plan B for Ireland, and it was a waste of an awful lot of the players they had. But at least at least we created chances where, like, save for one Egyptian yeah, that's interesting because some of the Irish fans coming out of the ground is a clip up on YouTube from RT that day were just raging at Egypt and having not watched the game back, really, Joe, I thought it was a bit ironic that they were giving out about Egypt not trying to play football because, you know, well, Ireland were noted for that as well, supposedly. But as you watch it back, you see actually, yeah, you know what, as bad as Ireland were, Egypt had no ambition at all. No, particularly after the first 20 minutes. In the early stages, you, you actually you could see quite clearly if Egypt were going to try and do anything, they were going to try and, and play the ball along the ground. Maybe a quick counter-attack up to Hassan. But really then, when they had no joy doing that, they just sat back in it, really in a deep defensive shell. But I suppose the thing is, and this is what Kieran's point is, that Ireland just were like so blunt. They were just... It was a cl- classic case of, okay, plan A is not working. What are we going to do? We're going to keep you know, trying plan A. And they didn't really try and do anything different uh, at any stage. And the Egyptians found it easy, to be honest. And all right, Ireland did have a few chances in the second half. Stone came close with a, with a shot. Um, Houghton probably should have done better. Kevin Sheedy had, you did really well to get a shot away at one stage. And you know, lucky for him, it just kind of found its way straight to the keeper. But when you think about it, there wasn't anything that was totally clear-cut that you could say was, well, you know, he definitely should have put that one away. We now know, obviously, looking back, Charlton's legacy, what it was and the type of football they play. But it often surprises me, too, with such experienced footballers in a team like that, that even without even breaking the game plan, that they can't execute better or deviate a little bit better as the game is progressing. Um, And to be so stuck to uh, and so rigid to a game plan. Like the, it was clear at, at one point uh, in the game that the Egyptians were not going to score unless something bizarre happened. And the, the fact that the players themselves on the field just kept on doing the exact same thing, I guess it goes to our point last week about maybe the difference between the um, the likes of the English-Irish attitude towards football and maybe the, the Dutch or even South American teams, how they probably have a bit more, you know, they take a bit more responsibility for how they play. I think as well for me, when I think about that game and looking back, as to what I was looking forward to in the tournament, like you all know me as a big Liverpool fan. I remember as a kid specifically worrying about will Ronnie Whelan be fit? 
And then now when you go back and you think about Ronnie Whelan's career in Liverpool and you think about his career under Jack Charlton and you just see like they, they don't correlate because he was an integral part of a very successful Liverpool team and was never really an important part of what Jack wanted to do. You know, he was a continuity footballer, kept the ball well. Uh, like I think he played 15 minutes or something in the 1990 World Cup, something similar in the 1994 World Cup. And if they had wanted to keep the ball, I know he probably wasn't fit in, in the, at all in any stage in the 1990 World Cup to, to, to be a, a key component. But I just think as well that it was never really in Jack's plan to include players like that. Uh, and he was going to stick to his guns no matter what. And whether you know Eamon Dunphy lost his head on, on television it didn't really make a difference to him. I wonder, like, you know, Colin and this, like, sports philosophy... It comes it comes to a head in games like this and at times like this because you know even the most avid football fans that Eamon Duffy was trying to represent in that rant they want victories you know it's I know we're getting down to the awful basic cliche but this seems to be a prime example of, example of it in the history of Irish football it, it was it was a job done ultimately you know it's going to really help them get to the next round as we know like why the frustration you know like exactly when when you think of Billy Joe's point as well understanding that even with Ronnie Whelan on the field even with Liam Brady and David O'Leary on the field there's still serious limitations and Ireland do need to adapt if they're going to beat better teams yeah I think it, it goes across all sports Rob um, where you have the likes of Dunphy or those who have played the game or are students of the game and uh, consider themselves very articulate voice in the game which to be fair he always has been and a very passionate one and then you have the fan and whether that's, you know, Joxer from Donabate or Colin from Bal, you know, we, we probably want different things. And it's very rare you kind of find that middle ground uh, where the person who can weigh up, well, listen, uh, this is our first World Cup. Um, we're in a tough group. It would be great to get out. And, you know, then you kind of judge on what success is from, from, uh, from that context. So, I don't know, for me... Again, looking back on it, I can definitely see the frustration that both Giles and Dunphy and others had. And to be fair to Dunphy, okay, while it was personal with Charleston, I think that's where the, the waters get very muddied and he loses it slightly. But to be fair to him, his argument was at the time that, you know, that they should not be cheerleaders for Ireland, um, which you can hear Bill O'Hurley say often in the studio, actually. And I think at one point when he, uh, he nearly says, we need to end this, uh, this row and, and get on and get behind the team, etc. But Dunphy's point was that they shouldn't be cheerleaders, that they should be objective observers, and they should be analyzing games and and, and trying to, you know, uh, figure out how Ireland could be doing better. Um, I personally would agree with that. And I think even, you know, for us, as we talk about Mayo down through the last decade, that's sometimes very difficult because it's so, such an emotional thing um, and it also then gets very frustrating uh, but you also have that, that dichotomy between maybe the, the likes of us who are looking at it one way and the guy who's there with his three kids sitting up in the Hogan stand crying his eyes out after a game so it's I think it's very rare you'll find the middle with these things and I think that 1990 World Cup uh, was, a, was a great example of that um, I would uh, I would agree at, as a kid myself I couldn't understand what the but the, what the you know this was the best thing I'd ever seen. This was like a dream come true to be for to be, for me to be watching this. So I couldn't figure it out. But looking back and as I got older and even watched more during my teenage years, um, I appreciated that there was it was more complex than that. I suppose a lot has in, in the thirty years since you know the Irish public has seen a lot of football, whether it's just the Irish team or the the mass exposure we have to Champions League and, and Premiership and, and, and Continental leagues. You know, but at that time in 1990, a lot of the people who were rightly enjoying the journey that it was, you know, how much did they really know about the game at the time to be to be 
critics in terms of the way it should be played. And I don't mean to be insulting in any way to the to the public, but I think we're a much better informed, um, uh, I suppose, fandom now than, than maybe we were then. But feel free to correct me on that. I just reckon all of this is a little bit overwhelming to the likes of John Giles and Eamon Dunphy at that point in time because for years they've been banging the drum about this game and maybe not getting the full nationwide attention and now all of a sudden everyone's paying attention but, you know, from their perspective they don't really know what they're talking about. So I think if you've listened to Eamon Dunphy or John Giles or even even read some of, of Dunphy's books on the game, he, he has a very strong idea of how it should be played and both of them have and they're consistent in that and have been. And I think that's what really sticks in their craw a little bit about it is that they see the game becoming more and more popular but in terms of the heritage of the game that as they they see it the football men that they aspire to you know that played the game in Ireland we probably wouldn't have known about down in Mayo you know that this is not a, a true reflection of what they were taught and what they aspired to when they were young players growing up in Dublin and when they went to England and, and, and forged their careers over there. And I think he just sees it as something that's not a true reflection of, of, of what, the I suppose, the philosophy of Irish football should be. And I think that gets him as much as anything, because he doesn't want Ireland to be seen on the world stage as a kind of a lumpet and headed bunch of headers. You know, uh, and and I think that's what he that's what he feels it is. He he, he constantly references the the playing uh, abilities that Brady had that uh, uh, Giles has himself uh, as what should be our reference points in terms of how we want to play the game. And uh, and I think that's as much as anything else that uh, that annoys him more so than maybe. No, it's hard for me to say whether Butch annoys him more or not, but I think that annoys him as much as maybe the idea that there's a missed opportunity there because if you played a more expansive game, you could be even more successful and go further into the tournament. It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a broader point and at the risk of starting a civil war down the Keys in Ballina, I think you could see a similar development in rugby uh, the last 10 or 15 years uh, because, you know, I think there's an awful lot of people who traditionally would have been attached to rugby clubs and played it during the amateur era or like families who would have run through rugby clubs for generations and generations. And honestly, I, I've, I've found at least that many of them rail against this kind of new fan um, that came along, you know, early 2000s right up to today, uh, you know, myself included in ways who like just like to go to, you know, maybe a bar on a, on a Saturday afternoon and watch a Six Nations game and, and pretend to kind of we knew everything about it. And, okay, while well, the style of play mightn't have been the issue as much with rugby or it, was, it wasn't maybe until the whole Schmidt uh, thing the last few years, I think when you have people who kind of are, have a deeper involvement in the game and then you have this new wave just to Billy's point, yeah, it's it can somehow kind of it, it forces a kind of a uh, there's a kind of a weird conflict there, and I think that's definitely for me at least that's what that's what was there with Dunphy in 1990 and and beyond. Your aunt's falling asleep in the background. Uh, sorry, lads. No, I'm just re-listening to Offaly and Kilkenny and the Leinster hurling on the radio here. Same routine as 30 years ago. <laughs> Are you going to do a whole podcast on that entire summer's championship? Uh, here, definitely give it a rattle. Yeah. This game's a bit one-sided. Uh, Kenny have only scored one point in the first half. DJ Carey. Billy Joe, have we learned anything from watching it back? Anything? Um, no. I, I, I don't think I, I learned anything other than... Uh, other than that, that, that's what, that was our way of operating at the time. And he wasn't going to deviate from that against a team that he felt um, deserved the respect that they had to play their normal game. And I think that's maybe something that we've learned. And it's, it's Colin's point, really, is that Egypt were much better 
than I expected them to be, having seen them twice at this stage in the World Cup. They were really well organised defensively. You know, they were totally committed, you know, quite athletic, a lot of, a lot of players with pace, you know, in a defensive sense. And I think as well, you know, in terms of the media coverage at the time, whether that's just an Irish thing or whether it's whether you're watching it on an American broadcast or a French broadcast or whatever we've been watching it as we've watched these games back, I think there was a complete lack of respect for African teams at the time. And that's, that's, that, that's obvious. And, uh, and probably for all, I suppose, teams from smaller or from unheralded continents at the time, maybe the Asian teams got the, got the same treatment. I think one of the things with, with this is Jack Charlton's post-match comments kind of add to the frustration where he's blaming the Egyptians. You know, he's furious about how they've played. And yet we've discussed at length how disruptive he is as a manager. What, what has frustrated me in watching this back is in the game we watched yesterday, the Netherlands versus England, Bobby Robson has, after eight years as manager, changed formation. He's shown himself to be flexible and it has given England opportunity. You could see it. They should have won the game. And actually, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a thing with international managers. Jack Charlton, when we get to USA 94, is much more flexible. He has a more limited group of players in 1994, but they try a different game. They change formation. They they find a, a place for a ball player like John Sheridan, finally. Um, and it's just a pity that with the generation of players that we had in 1990, and I'd say that's what was frustrating, Dunphy and Giles, we had brilliant footballers at the time, but they weren't being allowed to express that. Yeah, I think the other thing that if we've learned anything is that, and it seems overly simplistic to say, is that but that Irish team was set up uh, psychologically, tactically, strategically, every way you want to look at it, for to be better to play better against better teams. Um, and here we have a situation where we had a team that was probably on our level or slightly below our level and we couldn't break them down and we had enough imagination to, uh, to, to force, to force a goal. And, you know, it's sad that nearly 30 years later, we're still having that same conversation. We, we play better once we go a goal behind and that's borne out against uh, the Netherlands as it was uh, against England in the first game. So, um, yeah, it's 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 amazing whether or not that again is a psychological thing or it's just the acceptance that you know we are who we are and we're not that great and we got to do this and this is again the conversation that's still being had is like no we have to believe in our players more and we have to uh, <clears throat> be on the front foot an awful lot more and expect to win games you know from 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 the front but uh, yeah we just weren't set up we weren't built to beat an Egypt that day the way we played. We're coming back to the recurring theme of this World Cup, which is the dearth of truly, truly natural finishers in the tournament. Uh, I thought you were going to say it was uh, goalkeepers with uh, the tracksuit bottoms, which again, Schaubert, great performance. How he was wearing those in the middle of the day uh, in, in that hot Sicilian sun, I don't <laughs> they're know. The, they're the big thick cotton ones as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it is, it's, it, it, it's the recurring theme. The, the numerous chances that are created in each game and then the conversion rate. Uh, and it's borne out as the tournament develops. We don't see a striker, for instance, like Paolo Rossi or Zico or, or, someone, of, or, or yeah, yeah. someone of that prolific nature isn't there. If Ireland had had a striker of that nature, we'd have found a way to score in this game. Says it all right. Just to wrap it up, uh, a couple of things to, on this game. 
takeaway. You've got more? How could you have more <laughs> on this game? We we've we've spent more time on this game than Ireland spent in the Egyptian half. Uh, I mean, we we literally, Rob. Please, can you end this? No, no, I'm going to finish on this point. Chris Morris had a $3,500 fine, according to the commentators, for his yellow card. And I just think the listeners need to contemplate what you had said about the UAE players yesterday in terms of what they were on and if they had got any yellow cards. I'm going back over United Arab Emirates' work up to see who got yellow cards because, my God, they left the work up in minus figures. Yeah, actually, the fines are interesting because... Ah, see? They're, Told you there was more. They're, they're fining individuals. Uh, Andreas Bremer gets fined for his yellow card in the game against the United Arab Emirates. Uh, $5,000 and FIFA are upset that it's the German association that's going to pay it rather than him I mean they're not being paid by their countries to play for their countries to me it seems perfectly natural that the fine would be paid by the association that's it Colin can you imagine another podcast ever re-watching Ireland Egypt between now and the end of the earth no, honestly, I'm glad I have children already because if I rewatched that, I wouldn't bring another child into the world because I'd be like, no, this is it's it's too much. This this is ninety plus minutes that I will never get back and never forgive you for. <laughs> this is it, folks. If the podcast gets past this, I think we have a good shot of getting all the way to the final. But w- this was my big worry, and you can sense the tension here. I think we might save the day, though, with what's to come. Let's just move on. Let's move on. I hope no one has it. Well, I have a couple more things I want to say about this. Ca- no. Oh, good be- lord. <laughs> <laughs> South Korea, one. Spain, three. All right, well, you know, it's difficult enough with these games all clashing in terms of times to decide which game comes first in our in our order, but we've decided to go with South Korea versus Spain, which had a few moments of exciting takeaways, that's for sure. Some brilliant goals, a uh, couple of long-range belters and a hat-trick as well. Billy Joe, take it first. Yes, cracking goals. You know, when you come away from the the, 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 the mundane Ireland game, it just, and, and, and I suppose maybe Spain weren't didn't play that well. They're coming into it off a draw. They, they really need the, the win. And, and for a period there, you know, going into the second half, it was one all and they were probably ner- nervy enough. But I, I, you can't, but to me, it's all about the quality of the goals. And there's something to be admired in all four goals in that game. Michel's hat-trick, Wang Bo's shot, I think it's the cleanest strike I've seen at the World Cup so far. The ball has just played too many. He hits it so well that like Zubi Zareta in the Spanish goal, he's diving after the ball has hit the net. It's, it's just gone past him in a flash. Oh, an amazing, amazing hit. After actually quite some, some good football to that point to create the breakaway, okay, the, the, the free might be suspect and we might touch on that. But I, I think then the other thing that about Michel is... is Hey, I suppose he's an interesting footballer. I always found him interesting looking back at it because he had such a technical ability. And, and the first goal, I think, is nearly my favourite, the way he controls the volley into the far post or with not really trying to hit it that hard. And that's such a difficult skill uh, with the ball coming in from across. It, it, it's fantastic. Um, and again, a free kick. Michel was renowned as a, as a brilliant crosser of the ball, and just as I was maybe trying to read up a bit of, about, about him, but before this, uh, you know, the great Mexican striker Hugo Sanchez played at uh, Real Madrid with him, and I, I just read, which was an, an outstanding stat in, in my opinion. Then that I think in the eighty nine ninety season, Hugo Sanchez got thirty eight goals, all with one t- with his first touch. 
And I think that you kind of think think about that for a minute, right? So, so like literally every ball that was played to him that season was absolutely perfect for him to either head or hit first time. And I think that tells you something about the quality of the assists that he got that season. And Mitchell was responsible for a lot of them. And uh, the free kick again is just your classic curler. I don't know why the South Koreans did not jump on the wall, though. You you see so many instances like this. Uh, where you know it just seems illogical not to not to jump in that in that situation, and and the third goal again from Michel is just takes it on his left, turns inside from his left, steps on it from his right back to his left again, in, slaloms two players, and and just you know before he hits it, it's in the back of the net, and it really got um, Spain up and running maybe without playing that well. Truthfully, going through that Spanish side. Michel is the only player they've got that's in form and could have been termed world-class because Butragueno's captain, but he's not the Butragueno of previous years. He's not the prodigious talent that came through in the mid-80s. So they needed someone like Michel to stand up. Now, incidentally, before we move on, just haven't put it out there, Offaly had a comfortable win against Kilkenny. That's good to go. Um, Context. Colin. The goals were fantastic. The first one was definitely my favorite. The third one was like the last goal of a five aside on a Wednesday night, the way he, he took it, you know, and it was, and it was kind of against the grain of the World Cup too. Like it was like it was two, this was like a parallel World Cup that was going on watching these two games compared to a lot of the games that were happening in the other groups at, at that point. But, um, yeah, it's strange that I, I was kind of unaware uh, looking at the Spanish team of, of, uh, how, how few of them. I would have known Michelle being the one and just, yeah, I mean, even his celebrations, it's like every goal, it's like he was really uh, point to prove type stuff and uh, Seth Green goal also an absolute cracker. So yeah, this was actually a joy to to look at, um, a great antidote to the other. I'm glad I did it in the order I did it because I left happier. I think we could leave this game and get on to the last one, which was also a cracker. Hagi Bravo. Bravo, Monsieur Tice. <laughs> Belgium 3, Uruguay 1. Colin, I'm going to start with you because I just pick up on something you said in the last game, which is, I, I feel the exact same. When I was watching this game, I was like, what era is this? What tournament is this? What am I watching? Those first two goals from Belgium, the atmosphere, the pace, the football. Ah, I mean, it's nothing against the World Cup we've watched so far because I've enjoyed immensely a load of these games, but this was different. And I think you're right to point that out. Yeah, it was like watching it with kids' eyes again, to be honest. Um, for me, like having watched Belgium a couple of times now, they, they, at this point in the tournament, for me, they're the best team in it. They're playing great football. Shifo, like, is really, it's a great story. And I kind of, I'm looking forward to seeing seeing it develop even as the next couple of games go on because uh, he had a great game again in this. His goal was fantastic. No backlift, uh, just pinging one in. Uh, Kim Kleisters scored the first one. Um, and they were like two up after 22 minutes and they were, they were they were they were cruising. Then bizarrely, they bizarrely went down to ten men, and but were three up then uh, after forty six minutes with Uruguay actually playing okay. And uh, it was it was as much for me the names like I, I remember um, I remember Francescoli as a player, obviously, and he actually played quite well in this game as well. But uh, yeah, it was like a different World Cup watching these two teams play and go at it. Um, but yeah, Cumulans, uh that Belgian team, like they were just flying at this point. Uh, I think I was saying to you earlier on, Rob, that I, 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 as I was watching it, I'm like, I still can't remember how they went out. And then it it hit me. 
and I got really sad. Uh, I was, so, wait, I was yeah, waiting for it. Yeah, <laughs> I knew that. I knew that was gonna. I was yeah. like, "Oh, he's gonna. This this film's gonna end really badly for him." I, I know. And yeah. I just want to point out we've we've achieved a new record for number of sports referenced so far. We've managed Gaelic football, hurling, rugby, obviously football, and now we can add tennis. This has been a cracker. That's why you pay me the big bucks. Yeah, no, no. But just just to, just to finish up, like I know. Um, I mean. Billy's love for man love for Enzo Schifo knows no bounds, but I'm I'm on board. This is uh, this is virtuoso stuff. And in a World Cup that so far for me has seen most of the names that I would have remembered kind of underperform so far. This is the one that's living up to the villain. And uh, yeah, cracking player. I, I love I love his goal in this one for the simple reason the ball is played across to him and he thinks about going towards the ball and taking a touch and, and what's going on. And then it's all great number tens have that sort of feeling where they can feel what's around them and he understands that there's, there's he has a, a, an acre of space and he just totally backs himself and he actually he backs away from the ball to let it slide across his body and then he just like to time a ball like that to hit it so clean on the laces it's such a difficult thing to do to have such confidence to pull it off and then just it just rifles into the bottom corner Versavel très utile dans le jeu des Belges Derrière Van der Elst, Enzo Schifo qui va frapper. Oh, quel but Quel but Enzo Schifo, 30 mètres oh, au ras le... du poteau Il y a le téléviseur qui a explosé là. Oh là 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 là, un but. Ah oui, il y a notre téléviseur. I just wanted to point out as well. I think you talk about goals having impact. For me, the most impactful goal here is Jan Kuhlmans because they've had a setback before halftime. They've lost Eric. Eric Gerrits, very harshly, I think, for a second yellow card. He's such a key player for Belgium right throughout the 80s. They're only then ahead by the two goals. They know what's, what Uruguay have in terms of attacking potential. So that Jan Kuhlman's goal coming straight after half time, it puts it to bed. That's what reminded me of the current era Belgium team as well. Billy Joe, it was, it was like something you'd see in, in a more recent tournament, that kind of uh, hitting a team on the break, Uruguay just throwing everything at it. It was just, there was a lot of modern football feel to it and the space opened up and just the finishing ability, which Giron's been talking about. No doubt. Uh, and he's right. It's, it is the most important goal um, in that it, it kind of, it stunts any sort of possible comeback Uruguay would have at, at that stage. I think it's no surprise as well that it's Kuhlman's that uh, finds himself in that acre space, you know, driving into it and he just looks so gangly and awkward real heavy first touch and he just strides onto it but then has the experience to realize he doesn't have to hit it you know like put his foot through the ball he just has to keep it on the ground and he's a great chance and he does that and fires into the back of the net but i think you learn all you need to about this game from the opening 15 20 minutes and you understand then that both teams have qualities but you know belgium are superior just the interplay, you know, Shifo's is magnificent just in terms of holding on the ball, but he operates really well with Kuhlemans and, uh, you know, you know one-twos, moving it along. They, they can go back to their full-backs and, and keep possession. Uh, DeWolf is, 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 you know, getting up the line. He's always an outlet for possession. And is it just me or is, is it something that you don't see as often in the game now? Is it like a towering back post header like, like the opening goal from Kleisters because he comes at it, you know, really hard. I, I, to me, I, I just don't think I see. Now, maybe please feel free to correct me. I just don't think you see goals like that that often anymore. No, I mean it's it's something I thought as well when I 
looked at one of Klinsman's uh, and just how high he gets up, the direction he puts on it. And it's actually something we'll see from Belgium again, but we'll save that for another day. Um, but the one thing I did want to comment on was in that Kuhlman's goal, I think Uruguay, had events gone slightly differently, could have been down to 10 men as well. <laughs> because I think, is it DeWolf that puts the cross in? Um, he's just going down the left wing and he's out on the touchline. The ball kind of comes to him. But there's just this body comes in out of nowhere about five yards behind him with a vicious sliding tackle, badly mistimed. I mean, it's not even three, four metres from him. But, but if it had actually been timed correctly, I think they'd have found him outside the ground. Well, the, the only one I want to go back to is that uh, a player called uh, Carlos Cristina Aguilera came on for uh, Uruguay uh, on the 46th <laughs> minute. And uh, so I said I'd move away from sport and just get into pop culture generally. Um, no, it was, yeah, I, I fully agree. Watching it back, um, it was a key point in that game, uh, the Cumulans goal. And it's, it's funny, like looking back at these players that you heard so much about and then realizing what sort of footballers they were. And, uh, Cumulans to me, after watching him for two games now, it seems like his impact on that team was as much a, a sort of a, his, you know, he was, I guess, the elder statesman of that team, but he was such a leader for them. Uh, I think he only came on in the first game. Um, and he was, but he was excellent in this game again. And, uh, like that was a good Uruguay team that a lot of like Ruben Sosa, and Paz and Francesco Goli were all very well-established players. So, and this, Ben, ben, ben Goitier got a nice goal back for them. I mean, the funny thing yeah. about Jan Kuhleman is he always, I always associate him with Frank Stapleton. You know, that they've their, their careers have kind of run parallel. And even at this World Cup where Stapleton doesn't get a game, it's one of the things that's highlighted, particularly on a day like today, where you're saying Belgium trust Jan Kuhleman's to do this job for them. They trust him with... They, they trust him with the armband. Uh, but Frank, Stap- Frank Stapleton's left sitting on the bench while we're struggling against Egypt. I think as well, though, it's, it's important to say, you know, I know we are talking about the qualities of the players that we had, uh, but I don't think you can underestimate somebody like Cullimans in terms of his ability just because he stayed at Club Bruges throughout his career. You know, like I suppose the, Bel- the Belgian teams were much stronger back then than they are now, obviously. And I think you have to put that into context, like that... You know, AC Milan, I, I remember reading up on Kuhlman's that AC Milan had basically a deal done for him and he went to Italy and, and signed and everything and flew back to Belgium the next day and just decided, you know what, no, I'm just going to stay here. Like, So he obviously wanted to stay in, in Belgium, but he was a player of that ability that a club like AC Milan in the 80s, you know, really, really wanted to have him in their team. And I think that kind of gives you an idea of, of the qualities that he had. I hope their backup option wasn't Luther Blissett. It might well have been. All right, that's it. I think we have to just do the round table as well to see if there's anything left there. Kieran, do we have to pick any, any more bones out of this day? Yeah, well, I, I mean, look, the, the the big thing here is now we know that Belgium are into the next round um, and we know that Spain are back on track. So it's teeing it up for the final game in this group being a cracker because whoever wins it is going to come out of the group on top and that will favour them in the draw for the next round. Tomorrow is day 11 and we will make it through the hardest part of the entire podcast, we reckon, although I'm sure there's some other tough days ahead. Billy Joe, your takeaway from what we forced you to do, go first. The only thing, I, <laughs> I say this at the end of every show, the only reason I agreed to do this was to watch great players. And while I'm not going to go over the Shifo thing again, I think there is a lot to be admired in the way Enzo Francescoli plays. 
in this game, even even in a losing effort. And maybe he's a player that we would never have seen the best of, considering that maybe Uruguay didn't do as well at these tournaments that in the TV age that we would have seen. But uh, I remember there's a there's a there's a a piece of skill in the opening ten minutes where he he knocks the ball one side of a Belgium defender and runs around the other in a first touch sort of thing, and you just think, okay, so that's what all the fuss is about with him. They say it's all about the uh, the journey rather than the destination. Um, I'm going to take my feet firmly out of the fire now and just breathe a huge sigh of relief that the, that 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 game is over, and I'm looking forward to enjoying the rest of the, rest of the tournament because uh, yeah, I was dreading this and it's done now, so I'm happy. <laughs> We've just gotten over the bump in the road. Tomorrow, Rob, Argentina, Romania. I hope uh, Daniel Tomofte has a good game. 